Anyone here um, NCAA Final Four fans? It's the only time I watch, you know, the most basketball I know. I used to watch basketball incessantly. The only time I watch it now is in March, during March Madness. And if you're from New Jersey, you are a happy person today because Fairleigh Dickinson University defeated the number one, what, Purdue, right? They beat Purdue the other night, right? And yesterday, let's give it up for the Princeton Tigers because they, they're, going, they're going on. They're just great. So I'm pretty happy. But there's another NCAA tournament going on. It's the NCAA Wrestling Tournament. And I would really encourage you to watch that. And, um, but I want to, I mention that because I don't feel like I've been in a basketball tournament this week. I feel like with this passage of Scripture, I've been in a wrestling match. There's 2.2 billion people who are Christians in the world. Most of them are reading John chapter 9 for their gospel passage today. And what I want to invite you to do is I want to invite you to turn in your Bible or on your device or whatever you have as your source of Scripture. There may be a Bible in front of you. If not, look at your neighbor and say, can I borrow your Bible? And turn to John 9. I think it'd be good because it's, it's, it's a large chapter. Like last week was John 4. This week's John 9, and it's 41 verses. And I am not going to read all 41 verses. I promise you that. But I invite you to do it. But I've wrestled with where to begin with this message and this passage. And every time I read it, I'm, I see something different. And so I think I know where we're going to go this morning. Um, we have slides to prove it. Um, but uh, let's see what happens. But this is where I think we start with words that are, that are now 60 years old from someone you know as C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis said this, and this is not on the slides, by the way. This is a late edition. So just hear these words. If conversion to Christianity makes no improvement in a man's outward actions, if that person, let's remember the dated language here, if he continues to be just as snobbish or spiteful or envious or ambitious as he was before, then I think we must suspect that his conversion was largely imaginary. Fine feelings, new insights, greater interest in religion mean nothing unless they make our actual behavior better. Just as in an illness, feeling better is not much good if the thermometer shows that your temperature is still going up. In that sense, the outer world is quite right to judge Christianity by its results. When we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. Our careless lives set the outer world talking, and we give them grounds for talking in a way that throws doubt on the truth of Christianity itself. John chapter 9 begins with these words. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. 
And so begins our gospel today. He went along from where? Well, Jesus just came from uh, celebrating and being with people in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, we find him coming from making this statement. One you're very familiar with in verse 12 of John chapter 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, what do we find when we turn into John chapter 9? Well, what we find is we find darkness. Is there any darkness greater than the darkness of blindness? I've known people who are blind. I've known some amazing musicians who are blind, who can play, like, incredibly. But how hard that is. Is there such a darkness that's darker? Well, we're going to discover that there is. But Jesus, the light of the world, wants to eliminate darkness. And so what Jesus does in John chapter 9 in verse 5 is he repeats John chapter 8 verse 12. And he says, he echoes those words and says, you know what? The light of the world. And then we read this. I wonder, what would you have done if you would have witnessed this? Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now I have a question. If you had a choice about how Jesus was going to heal your blindness, would you opt for the spit and mud approach? My guess is you probably would not. I think I'd say, hold on, Jesus. I'd like you to put on a face mask or you know, use some hand sanitizer or something. But this story has lessons for us in our world today and even lessons in this season that we call Lent. First, this miracle is really, literally, quite literally, very earthy. It's spit and dirt that form a healing paste. One translation says it creates clay. It was not the great religious spectacle we often associate with miracles. It wasn't all the hype. It wasn't all of that. Rather... Just the very ground upon this blind man had walked his entire life. The very ground that Jesus had formed with his own hands. And in doing that, he was making a statement. He just wants you to know one thing. I got the power. I got the authority. You just need to know that you're dealing with the creator now. And then what happens is a mix of emotions all of a sudden come running into each other like runaway freight trains. It says, goes on, verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. I love that. <laughs> but he himself insisted, no, 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 I am the man, he's saying. How, how then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud. There again. <laughs> That's what happened. And he put it on my eyes. He told me to go and wash. And so I went and I washed, and then I could see. 
Well, where is this man? I don't know about you, but if I just was told that story about someone, one of you, I'd say, where are they? Maybe I'll go get my cousin Henry, who's also blind, and bring him. Or maybe I'll go get this person who, who needs help and bring them. And where is that man? I love how, I love how earthy the gospel is. How true it is. These people who knew this man were astonished. And let me ask you, wouldn't you be knocked off center? You'd be knocked off center. I'd be knocked off center. We'd be knocked off guard. Who makes blind people see? We'd be skeptical. We are skeptical. There's excitement and there's confusion and all this stuff is running together. And yes, there may be even joy. All of this is happening, even joy. That is except for one group in this whole story. And that is the group known as the Pharisees. Now, you may be familiar with them. Now, before we pile on the Pharisees, all right, whenever the Pharisees show up in a story in Scripture or in some pastor's sermon, remember, they must be us, not them. Because here's the truth. Let me in on, I'll let you in on a little secret. We all can channel our inner Pharisee. All right? So these religious leaders, yes, the Pharisees could not see it. The man saw it, the people saw it, but the Pharisees missed it. And the question is, why? Well, you probably know that one of the chronic symptoms of insufficient water intake, which I think I need to take some water in now, Insufficient water intake is irritation of the eyes and compromised vision. And the Pharisees, these religious leaders, were woefully lacking in living water and it caused their spiritual eyesight to be compromised. This is how the Bible puts it. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Sunday morning in our case. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. They just keep talking about that. He put mud on my eyes. put mud on my eyes. And I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. The chapter before this, that eighth chapter, they said that Jesus was demon-possessed. He worked for the devil. But look at it, look at it. The church people of his day that would have been considered the best church people of his day who profess to have the sharpest spiritual insight are more concerned about debating the right or wrong way to heal someone that they fail to see the man. He is within their line of sight. But they do not see him. They only see a threat to their preconceived vision of Messiah and political power, which is what their vision was. They only see a, a failure of their expectations. It's a threat to their expectations. It's a threat to their comfortable, a disruption of their comfortable faith. The greatest miracle maybe in their lifetime. How, how often do you see someone 
heal a blind man. The greatest miracle in their lifetime is in front of them, and they are blinded by the hardening of their categories. And what's really great about this passage is the least theologically trained person in the crowd schools them. And that's the man. He's the least, he knows the least theologically. The least pastorally trained guy in the crowd. He schools them. Picking it up at verse 30. The man answered, now that is remarkable. Because they just said, we don't know where he came from. You don't know where he comes from yet. He opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a blind man born, a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, here's their response. You know, you might say, well, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, maybe this is the guy. Here's their response. You were steeped in sin at the birth. <laughs> How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They threw the miracle out. <laughs> Get out of here. Talk about a little defensive, maybe? It was a huge effort on their part in missing the point. The point was not the miracle. The point was not the man. The point was not keeping the religion all right and good and law straight. They missed Jesus. Here's the most indicting statement from Jesus at the end of this chapter. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Whew. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is how the message paraphrase puts that last line. But since you claim to see everything so well, you're accountable, you're accountable for every fault and failure. Ooh. So what lessons do we take away? That's the summary of the chapter. The Jeff DeFrance version. What Lent lessons can we take away? Well, there's a lot of them, but let's, let's try to dig into this a little bit. Open our hearts to what God might say to us. Hubris, arrogance, self-importance, and a desire for power blind us. When personal comfort and security are our primary focus, we miss it. When we fail to see the way of Jesus as our way, we begin to lose our sight. We all need to make sure Jesus is the main thing. And that begins with self-examination, which most of us don't want to do. I know that I often don't want to do that. Maybe it's important for us to be asking, is there anything or anyone more important to me than my relationship with God? 
I regularly keep a story about Dallas Willard in the flyleaf of my brain. The story goes like this. Dallas Willard was a world-class philosopher. And he's known in, our, in Christian circles as a Bible scholar and a theologian and wrote great devotional material. But first of all, he was a world-class trained scholar or philosopher. And he was teaching a philosophy, a graduate philosophy class when towards the end of that class, a student raised their hand and objected and actually humiliated, tried to humiliate Dallas Willard with what he was saying, insulting him. And the student was actually clearly wrong. And rather than correct him, Dallas Willard gently said that this would be a good place to end the day, to end the class. And in the class, you're dismissed. Well, after class, a good friend of Dallas Willard's approached him and said, why did you let that student get away with that? Why didn't you demolish him? And Dallas replied, I was practicing the discipline of not having the last word. And then elsewhere, he said this, one of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt other people with it. What does all that have to do with what we're talking about today? Well, these words remind me of the importance, this chapter reminds me of the importance of decentering the ego. And you know God's way of working, it seems to me. I'm digging into things like this. He sends little messages my way, and last night towards the very last stages of before I was conking out to sleep, I was praying. If you're using Lectio 365 app, you prayed this prayer last night. Father God, would you reveal to me the ways I made today about me instead of you? I take a moment to confess my idolatry to you now. You see, if Lent is anything... If this season as we prepare for resurrection is anything, if it's anything, it's time for us to consider our need to de-center our ego. Because those who would be characterized as the best church people of Christ's day did not, and that caused them to be blind. Blind to God's priority of compassion. They didn't even see the man. They, they, all they saw was, was what they wanted to see in that man. They didn't see him. They lost sight of this man. who He was blind from birth. That meant he was destitute. That meant he was forgotten. That meant he was, he was a person in crisis all the time. And they were so blind they were blind to God's priority of compassion. And they were blind to what truly honored God. They thought they figured it out. In fact, the religious leaders did say to the man, glory, give glory to God by telling the truth. That's ironic, isn't it? He's been telling them the truth all along. Give glory to God. They, they had the language right. They would be the loudest voices in the choir singing to God be the glory, great things he had done. 
But they were not interested in God's glory, at least as they expected and anticipated or wanted it to be. But the saddest blindness of all, the saddest one of all in this entire passage, the most grievous, is that they were blind to Jesus. They did not see Jesus as the one that they really needed. They believed God was the rightful ruler of the secular world. But they were blind to the God who was the true ruler of the heart. And they did not see who he really was. Now, last week we looked at the woman at the well. And what's interesting about the woman at the well was she was completely unseen. Completely unseen and had very little resource to be seen. Well, this passage is a juxtaposition against that passage from John 4. Because now we're with these people who were seen by everyone. The Pharisees were seen by everyone. And they had everything they needed to see, especially to see God clearly. But most sadly and grievously, they were unable to see the very Messiah they longed for. He's standing right in front of them. And they were unable to see it. Spitting on the ground, making the mud, I'm the creator. Talking about the light of the world. Reminding them. Using Messiah, Messiah kind of language. And they didn't make doing a miracle. Only Messiah could do it. And they didn't see it. More lessons for us. Sometimes... We chase after fulfillment of our longings in the ways and the wiles of men and the power and the purposes in the plans of the world. And we too miss Jesus. The Pharisees saw this man and this Messiah contrary to their religious and political goals, which were one and the same. They saw this man and this Messiah as different and their difference was a threat. Scott McKnight makes this very challenging statement for me. Churches today more and more are aligning with a political party since people prefer to worship with persons with the same political stance. Churches had people, at one time, churches had people who differed politically, and it was good for the church to have those differences. Today, now hear it, people in churches see those with differences as enemies. New book by Bob Smithana, Reorganized Religion. He writes, it's hard to worship with people who think you are the devil. That makes it a little different. Makes it a little difficult, right? But that's what, that's what the Pharisees thought Jesus was. They thought he was of the devil. And maybe this old quote from Tony Campolo puts it well. Putting religion and politics together is like mixing ice cream in with horse manure. It doesn't hurt the horse manure, but it ruins the ice cream. <laughs> the point being, we sometimes... We sometimes find ourselves chasing after fulfillment 
through the purposes and the plans and the power of the world, and we miss it. Sometimes we miss what God is doing because we've determined it's more about what works best for us. When our faith is mixed more than with the American dream of security and comfort, more than with the cross, suffering. I heard Pastor Larry say today in our journey group, he said, you know, sometimes we're just, we just want everything to be easy. And it's not always easy. In fact, most of life is not easy. We fill our lives even with good things, even with religious things, even with Christian activity things in an attempt to hide our hearts from truly being seen by Jesus and even doing hard things. And another lesson is sometimes we make God fit into our preconceived categories and like this Pharisee, these Pharisees, sometimes we will only let God work in a way that fits into my mold my way of thinking, my expectations. But we learn from the blind man. There he is again. He schools us. It had to be humiliating for the man when this so-called prophet spits in the dirt, makes some mud, and wipes it on his face. He was already as low as could be in life. It had to be humiliating. But this man, this man was willing to humble himself before Christ. How willing is Jeff DeFrancis to humble himself before Jesus so that he can heal my blindness? Or am I preventing the hardening of my categories from allowing Jesus to heal my heart? All right, so why is this very uncomfortable story here, (laughs) right? Because I think it's an invitation. I think it's an invitation to allow myself to be confronted with questions that I or we must ask ourselves. It is a little uncomfortable. I don't know if you're feeling uncomfortable, but preaching a message like this is uncomfortable. But maybe that's the point, because we do not want the hardening of our categories to prevent us from seeing the main thing, and the main thing is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name. Scripture says... There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but the name Jesus. So maybe it's an invitation to ask some questions like these. How often do I have to be right? How willing am I to admit that I am wrong? Mm. Do I only surround myself with the political, cultural, and religious echo chambers? that I agree with? Here's a tough one for me. What blind spots do I have when it comes to those unlike me? Do I have to always be in control, always the one who gets the attention? How often do I make negative assumptions about others? Remember, that they did that. The Pharisees made negative assumptions about the man and about Jesus. 
And about, by the way, anyone who would agree with Jesus, they were kicked out. Is there anything that I am mixing with faith in Jesus that blinds me from seeing him or seeing my own heart? Is Jesus really the main thing in my life? But as I said, there's 2.2 billion Christians in the world and the overwhelming majority of them are reading this gospel today as the gospel reading. So my question is, is what is the gospel in this? The Greek word for gospel literally means good news. So what is the good news? Here's the good news. It's pretty simple. You don't have to be blind. Amen? Friends, come on now. We don't have to be blind. Verse 25. One thing I know. He says, I don't know about any of this other stuff. I don't know about what you're talking about on this Sabbath healing stuff. I don't know. I don't know about your ignorance of where he came from. I don't know about it. But this is what I do know. Once I was blind, but now I see. How many of you can say that? Once I was blind, but now I see, right? Praise God. Verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? Later on, Jesus picks up with this guy. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man said, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believed. And look at his first response, another one of humility. He worships him. I know you know that the most famous song in the Library of Congress is John Newton's Amazing Grace. More copies of that than any song in the Library of Congress. And the most famous line in that song is, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. John Newton took that thought from John 9.25. From this miracle. And I'm sure you know his story. He was a young slave trader, captain of two slave trading ships. He viewed black people as property to be bartered and used. That's just history. He was blinded to his own racism and his own disregard for the image of God in those he perceived as less than him. And something happened. He had a foundational shift. He was on a ship that was in peril of sinking. And he had an encounter with God. And it didn't happen all at once. That was in 1748. It took a few years. But there was this foundational shift within him that took place. And like this man who was healed, his hardened categories were softened. And his heart opened to the truth of his sin and his error and his failure and opened to the grace of God. And he went on to be one of the strongest proponents for the abolition of slavery. Here's what I want you to get. Grace to John Newton was not a warm, fuzzy, feel-good, it's always going to be nice thing like we make it to be in the church. Grace was disruptive. Grace was formative. Grace was transformational. And this entire chapter and this entire sermon lands at this place 
we don't have to be blind because grace transforms us. It changes us. It makes us different people. And what the world is crying for is different people who sing a different song than the song of the world, than the ways of the world, than the wiles of the world. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ today. That we don't have to be blind, but that his grace can change our lives. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We don't have to be blind. Lord, I believe. Stand with me this morning. Our worship team is going to lead us in amazing grace today. And I hope as you sing this song, you sing it with new depth and meaning and understanding of what it actually is about. That the man who wrote this wasn't talking about nice feelings or things always working out his way. But he was talking about God intersecting and interrupting and disrupting his life. He's talking about God removing the blind spots from his life. He's talking about God dismantling the hardening of the categories in his life. He's talking about God helping him see humanity in a new way. He's talking about God opening up his eyes to Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life who causes us to live a way, to live out a truth, and to live in the power of his life. That's what this song's about. It's not just about me fixing my sin problem. It's about me being transformed by the love and the life of Jesus, which causes me to live in a new way to the world around me. And oh, do we need that. We do not have to be blind. As you sing this, sing this day, if you could stand up and say, I once was blind, but now I see, you, you need to sing this song with all the gusto you have within you. If you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor Jeff, there's places in my life I must confess between me and God. I've been uncomfortable in this part of this sermon or this part of this service. or this. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit tapping on your heart and my heart. Here's the beauty. Jesus, I just want to see. Jesus, rub the dirt, the mud of your creative power on my heart and help me see because I can't do it myself. That blind man was left to blindness except for the fact that the creator God used his creative power to touch this broken man. And if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be reading a story about some blind man who could see. We'd be reading about a man who was living in poverty and who had been neglected and had forgotten. He would have never made it into biblical history. That's how powerful grace is. So, I'm going to try to watch some of the NCAA wrestling match. And I don't know where you might be wrestling. But let's pray for amazing grace today, amen? Let's sing to the Lord, this is our prayer.